This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, the African Perspective, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet, on free-to-air satellite PAS10, and on the internet at www.channelafrica.co.za. You can also follow us on Facebook at Channel Africa, on Twitter at Channel Africa 1, and on WhatsApp. I'm Kumbaro Munjarere with Jolani Tulo and Sihe Zuma. Coming up on the show this hour, health authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo say they are about to declare the end of the 11th Ebola outbreak. A row has broken out in Malawi's parliament over the decision to open an embassy in Jerusalem. And for the first time in 20 years, the National Zoo in South Africa's capital of Pretoria has a southern giraffe uh, bull that was born at the zoo. All this and more coming up on the show, but first the news with Jualani. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Kumbela. Good afternoon. South Africa's President Soro Ramaphosa, in his capacity as chairperson of the African Union, has called on the Nigerian government to desist from the use of violence and respect human rights and the rule of law amid the hashtag end SARS protests. For nearly two weeks, the country has been rocked by protests over alleged police brutality by the special anti-robbery squad SARS in Nigeria. Earlier this month, this month amid mounting pressure, the SARS was disbanded by the Nigerian government. Ramaphosa expressed concern over the violence in Lagos and offered condolences to the family of the protest, the protesters that have died and wish those injured a speedy recovery. He was speaking during the second media coordination meeting of the African Union, the regional economic communities and regional mechanisms. The government has instituted a 24-hour curfew in Lagos, but earlier this week soldiers shot at protesters in Lekki District. On Tuesday, Nigerian nationals living in South Africa handed over a memorandum to the Nigerian High Commissioner to South Africa in the capital Pretoria calling for an end to the violence. Meanwhile, Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari has been holding talks with his defense chiefs as unrest continues in the wake of the shootings. He's been chairing a meeting of Nigeria's National Security Council in, Buh- in Abuja. Buhari has yet to comment directly on the violence earlier this week. The army has denied involvement in the killings. Speaking on BBC Radio earlier, Nigeria's police minister Mohamed Maigari Dinyadi has insisted that security forces were not responsible for the shooting dead of protesters on Tuesday evening in Lagos. I cannot say actually who is involved in the shooting. There could be some miscreants who are having guns shooting people here and there. But, but definitely not the police. Not the police. But eyewitnesses said they saw soldiers. They said they saw soldiers. Soldiers have already spoken about this. They are denying their involvement. And government is aware that they have not given any soldiers the instruction to go into this crisis, not at all. 
One person has been reportedly killed and a dozen others were wounded in protests that have turned violent in Sudan. This is according to a group of doctors linked to the movement that led to the downfall of President Omar Bashir. The demonstrations on Wednesday in the cities of Khartoum and Omar Omdurman are over the country's worsening economic situation. Protesters are also demanding justice for the hundreds killed during the 2019 uprising, which led to Bashir being toppled. Eyewitnesses said police fired tear gas to disperse the small gatherings of about 100 protesters. The Kremlin has denied allegations from the United States that it had tried to interfere in next month's presidential election, calling the accusations of un- of hacking unfounded. U.S. Director of National Intelligence John Re- uh, Ratcliffe said Russia and Iran had both obtained voter registration information ahead of the upcoming 3rd of November election. He has accused the two countries of using illicitly attained voter registration details. Some voter registration information has been obtained by Iran and separately by Russia. This data can be used by foreign actors to attempt to communicate false information to registered voters that they hope will cause confusion, sow chaos, and undermine your confidence. And finally, local officials in North Afghanistan say they believe about 12 children have been killed in an airstrike and several others wounded in an airstrike on the mosque in the northern Taka province. The Defence Ministry has acknowledged that the Afghan Air Force has been in action against the Taliban militants. The BBC's Sukunda Kimani reports. The Afghan Ministry of Defence promised to launch an investigation into the allegations but also said that no civilian casualties occurred. That doesn't seem to hold up. Doctors at a nearby hospital have said that the vast majority of patients that they've been treating have all been children. The imam of this religious school who was himself injured in the attack has said that there was no one present at the time other than him and his pupils. Now this area where this airstrike took place was the scene of heavy fighting earlier this week with more than 30 members of the Afghan security forces being killed in attacks by the Taliban. So this airstrike was of course intended to target the insurgents. For Channel Africa, I'm Jalani Tulo. Now for a sports update with Musiburi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. And starting off with football news, Zimbabwean Premier Soccer League side Bulawayo City has revealed that three of its players have gone into isolation after testing positive for coronavirus. Following tests done by the club in preparation for resumption of training, now a total of 15 City players, technical team members, and the club secretary underwent COVID-19 testing last Thursday. Following the test, City confirms that three players have tested positive and are now self-isolating. Now, meanwhile, only PSL teams, women soccer league teams, as well as national teams have been given the green light to resume activity. A mini-league concept has been proposed using a bubble idea with activities to strictly be controlled. Now, the draw for the 2020 Kosafa Women's Championship has been concluded and has produced some fascinating ties for the competition that will take place in South Africa's Eastern Cape province from the 3rd up until the 14th of November. The hosts and the defending champions, South Africa, are the top seeds in Group A and have been drawn alongside Eswatini, Comoros and Angola. Zambia head Group B and will go up against Olfos, Malawi and Lesotho, while Group C contains Zimbabwe, Botswana, 
Botswana and Tanzania. Meanwhile, the Kosafa Women's Under-17 Championship will also be played concurrently from the 5th up until the 13th of November and features five sides in a single pool which will be played on a round-robin basis. The five teams are the hosts South Africa, Comoros, Tanzania, defending champions Zambia as well as Zimbabwe. And finally, Carla Pretorius was this week named Sunshine Coast Lightning Players Player of the Year as well as Player of the Year at the end of season awards. The South African netball player made club history by being named Player of the Year for a third consecutive time. Lightning finished in third position in the Suncorp Super League this season out in Australia after losing in the semifinals. Pretorius, who is also the vice captain of the team, sums up her season. Very grateful that we actually had a 2020 season it's been very different compared to previous the previous three seasons knowing that at the beginning we weren't really sure whether we'll have a season or not but a lot of hard work we're in and we were able to have a season so for that we were just very grateful um, for us as a club in the second on the ladder after the playoff or after the round games going into our fourth grand final series um which we are very proud of as a club. And the Zion Sports News at the Sour. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Democratic Republic of Congo's health authorities say they are about to declare the end of the 11th Ebola outbreak as no new case has been recorded since the last 21 days. The epidemic that started last June in the country's northwestern province of Equator has killed at least 53 of the 128 infected people. Now, the DRC government has described the situation as a very good one, as Joanual Bomwenze reports from Kinshasa. The statement has come out after a delegation including the Congolese government and its partners went on an evaluation visit in the Ebola-affected areas of the Equator province. What they realized is that the situation is now very good as no new case of the Ebola outbreak has been reported in that northwestern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo since more than 21 days. At least 53 of the 128 Ebola-infected people have been killed since the outbreak started last June and has spread to 12 of the 17 health zones, including Bandaka, the provincial chief town. What's now needed is the local response team capacity building ahead of the post-Ebola transition, according to Dr. Itani Longondo, the DRC Minister of Health. Evolution is very positive because since September 28th, we didn't record any new case. We are now planning with partners a capacity building for a local response team that will deal with transition of post-Ebola. The Equator province is facing COVID-19 as well. Since the pandemic hits now 21 of the Democratic Republic of Congo's 26 provinces, the important is to be able to deal with both sicknesses response plan same time, according to Dr. Jean-Jacques Muyembe, the response coordinator for both Ebola and COVID-19. Dr. Muyembe emphasizes Ebola is already under control. 
there is no new case of Ebola in Equatorial. The outbreak is now under control and there is no suspect contact. We can really say the epidemic is under control and people respect health measures as decided by health authorities. This is indeed the 11th Ebola outbreak the DRC has experienced, but for the Equator it's the fourth since it occurred in the same province around Ebola River in 1976. Ebola is transmitted from wild animals to humans. The 10th Ebola disease was reported in the North Kivu province in August 2018 and declared over last June this year after it has killed at least 2,287 people of the 3,470 confirmed cases and only 1,171 infected people were lucky to survive. And according to the World Health Organization, 250,000 contacts were registered and 220,000 samples were tested, while 303,000 were vaccinated in the eastern province of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. A row has broken out in Malawi's parliament over the decision to open an embassy in Jerusalem, Israel, by newly elected President Lazarus Chakwera. This took center stage when President Chakwera appeared in Pali on Wednesday to answer questions from parliamentarians. Most parliamentarians, especially from the opposition side, did not like the idea, claiming it has some international relations repercussions. George Mohango sent us this report from Blantyre. This comes as President Lazarus Chakwera, a theologian and politician, who became president in June this year, said Malawi will establish a diplomatic mission with Israel in Jerusalem. Chakwera said Malawi is a sovereign state with its own foreign policy and there should be no question on the country's decision, including on whom to associate with. The idea of re-energizing the existing relations with Israel and establish residential diplomatic missions should not be regarded as something new in our foreign policy. Israel is a great nation and a leader in many fields of human endeavor, including science and technology, agriculture, education, and human development, and indeed economic transformation. These are attributes which Malawi seeks to learn from and improve on our own prospects as a nation. The government's commitment to consolidate our bilateral relations with Israel is therefore well grounded in our own national interest. But a former Minister of Information and government spokesperson during the former ruling Democratic Progressive Party DPP regime, Mark Borderman, raised the question to the President in which he wanted to find out what motivated Malawi to focus its diplomatic attention to Israel. But my question, uh, uh, right honorable speaker, to the, to the president, uh, why has the government specifically decided to, uh, to uh, have its embassy in Jerusalem when there are all contentious issues around it? Considering that, if we do so, we will be the first country in this part of Africa, actually uh, the first country in Africa,
according to Chakwira, this is part of reforming the country's foreign affairs ministry and its missions abroad so that Malawi's embassies are able to deliver on the ambitious objectives of promoting Malawi's national interests globally. With reference to the United Nations Council Resolution 2334, as a member of the United Nations, we are fully aware of that resolution. And we are cognizant of the fact that its overall aim is the peaceful settlement of the Israel-Palestinian conflict and the establishment of two states living side by side and in peace and tranquility. This goal requires the support of all UN member states and in dealing with all parties in the conflict. This goes very well with our foreign policy thrust of peaceful resolution of all disputes in every part of the globe. Now, with regard to consultation with the AU before making our decision, Madam Speaker, government wishes to restate that relations between states are governed by the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations and other principal statutes of the UN, and in our case, the African Union. Malawi does not have an embassy in Israel at this point, and Israel's ambassador to Nairobi, Kenya, doubles as ambassador to Malawi, also to Uganda, Tanzania, and the Seychelles. But Malawi and Israel established diplomatic relations with each other in July 1964. George Mhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Again, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Again. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. It is 18 minutes after 1700 hours. You are listening to Africa Midday here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Human Rights Watch has published a report about Congolese militia leader Gidon Shimirai Mwisa, known as Gidon, who is wanted for multiple crimes under a June 2019 warrant. Human Rights Watch says his forces have nevertheless continued to carry out summary killings, rapes and sexual slavery, extortion and forced recruitment of children while Congolese army units have continued to support and collaborate with his militia from planning military operations to providing the group with arms and ammunition. Gidon commands a faction of the Nduma Defense of Congo, Renov, NDCR, which until it split in July 2020, 
controlled more territory than any other armed group in Eastern Congo. To discuss uh, this further, we are joined on the line from London in the UK by Human Rights Watch researcher Thomas Fessy. Good afternoon, Mr. Fessy. Welcome to Africa Digest. Good afternoon. Now, talk to us about uh, Gidon. Who is he and why is it proving so difficult to arrest him? So, Gidon is, uh, is, is from the Nyanga community in North Kivu, in the Walikale territory, exactly. So, that's in Eastern Congo. Um, and um, he was a former Congolese soldier. So he was in the military until 2007 when he deserted from the army and uh, shortly thereafter joined a uh, rebel group called the NDC at the time, um, whose leader uh, was named Sheka and uh, is now himself indicted for mass rape and torture and is awaiting his verdict uh, in a trial that took place in a, in a military tribunal in, in Goma. Um, but in 2014, Guidon broke away from Sheka and created his own armed group, the NDCR, as you said in your introduction. And with this armed group, it promised uh, the Nyanga community uh, at the local level to get better representation in the administration, in the army, uh, and to fight uh, the Rwandan Hutu militia called FDLR, um, but also to, to, to get the, his community uh, greater access to land and natural resources. The fact is that over the years, Guidon has become a, a brutal rebel leader um, involved in the illegal trade of uh, gold and, and minerals sure. uh, and involved in uh, many... Uh, human rights abuses um, in in that area. And and what prompted you to um, uh, conduct uh, a research on him? So this is a research that started in 2016. So it lasted uh, four years, and we interviewed more than a hundred people. Um, we started the research because we were getting a lot of reports about the human rights uh, abuses carried out by his militia. And so we talked to many victims, witnesses of attacks, um, former child soldiers, uh, but also local activists, security sources, and UN staff. And we've also analyzed a trove of footage uh, showing some of those abuses, including illegal taxation on the, on the local population, uh, beatings for people who wouldn't comply with, with uh, uh, what the group uh, would impose on them. Uh, but the footage also shows the collaboration between the militia and some of the military, uh, Congolese military units. Now, you say that uh, the authorities also have not provided survivors of sexual violence adequate assistance, Thomas. How are they coping at the moment? moment? Because I can imagine they must be traumatized by the ordeal. Exactly. You're totally right. And and that remains um, a critical uh, question in Eastern Congo, not only for the victims, Uh, of sexual violence committed by Guidon's militia, but committed by all the militia in Eastern Congo. You know, there's over 100 armed groups operating 
in the whole of Eastern Congo at the moment. And, and unfortunately, many women and girls are still falling victim uh, of uh, acts of, of sexual violence. And uh, they are completely left on their own. And they're not receiving any uh, kind of adequate um, medical care, um, you know, uh, at the very uh, at the most, uh, they would get uh, some kind of care from local medical center, but you can imagine how poorly equipped they are uh, compared to the trauma, both physical and mental, that those women and girls uh, have been going through. So there's a lot to do um, to support those uh, uh, survivors of rape and sexual violence to ensure that uh, uh, both at the physical and mental level, they can be taken care of. And is uh, President uh, Chisukedi's government aware that uh, the elements of the Congolese army have been collaborating with the NDCR? That's a good question for them. I'm pretty sure they are aware. Um, and if they were not, I uh, hope that they are now aware of it, given our reports. But this is not the first time that uh, a report on the collaboration between the NDCR and the Congolese uh, and some of the Congolese army units um, is, uh, is is published. Um, so it shouldn't come as a surprise to, to the presidency in, in Congo. Now, what is sure is that despite the arrest warrant that was issued in June last year, uh, nothing was done to enforce that warrant, and Guidon was able to uh, continue to receive support from the military commanders that he was in touch with in the East, um, uh, channeling uh, weapons and ammunition so that they could use his militia as a proxy force in their fight against um, other armed groups in, in the area. And I believe that you have made some recommendations in the report. Take us through those recommendations. Yes, exactly. Well, first of all, we would like to see the the authorities enforce that arrest warrant. And we understand that uh, uh, military operations are ongoing at the time, uh, um, at, at present time, um, to, and, and the military will tell you that they are now seeking to arrest Guidon. Um, you should know that back in July this year, the uh, NDCR actually split into two factions because Guidon's deputy commanders actually broke away from him and there's now an an open conflict between the two factions and it appears that um, uh, at least we're getting credible information already that uh, some of the Congolese army units are now backing uh, the rival faction to Guidon trying to to fight uh, Guidon. So we are calling on the government to step up efforts to arrest Guidon but also to make sure that he's deputy commanders who are uh, equally responsible for uh, the many abuses of of this militia to be arrested and for all the army commanders that uh, would have been found implicated in in this collaboration to be suspended, disciplined and prosecuted. All right, uh, Mr. Fessy, it has been a pleasure talking to you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Many thanks. All right, uh, that was uh, Human Rights Watch researcher Thomas Fessy talking to us on the line there from London. It is 27 after 5 Central African time. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. 
What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Are you ready? Something new, informative, fun and exciting is coming your way. Channel Africa is introducing brand new shows and you, our valued listener, do not want to miss these. Live Well will be launched on the 31st of August at 10 hours and will educate us about health, wellness and health lifestyles. African Insight to be launched on the 2nd of September at 8 hours. It looks at infrastructure projects in Africa in an effort to improve the continent's economy. Yours truly, to be launched on the 31st of August, broadcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday between 22 hours and 23 hours. And it will connect listeners to the loved ones through dedications, well wishes, topped up with great African music. Cuisines Africa will be launched on the 5th of September at 10 hours and we'll leave you salivating as we explore diverse African dishes, color of culture, and rich history. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV802 for these new exciting editions. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is uh, half past five Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest with me, Kumbero Munjalere. It is now time for Channel Africa's news headlines with Jualani. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, making headlines. South Africa's President Soro Ramaphosa in his capacity as chairperson of the African Union has called on the Nigerian government to desist from the use of violence and respect human rights and the rule of law amid the hashtag end SARS protests. One person has been reportedly killed and a dozen others were wounded in protests that have turned violent in Sudan. And finally, the Kremlin has denied allegations from the United States that it had tried to interfere with next month's presidential election, calling accusations of hacking unfounded. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. October is a Global Diversity and Inclusion Month. Cohesion Collective, together with their partners at Interweave Consulting, involve people and Amanda Hammett are challenging South Africans to join the exciting hashtag 30-day inclusion challenge learning journey. Through the bridging of different uh, perspectives and voices from different regions across the globe, South Africa, India, UK and the USA, the hashtag 30-day inclusion inclusion uh, challenge will enable individuals to build greater consciousness and awareness around matters that relate to equality, diversity and inclusion. This free learning journey will see you engaging each week with a different theme race, ethnicity, gender, LGBTIQ, and generations. Partner for Diversity and Inclusion Specialist at Cohesion Collective, Dominic Haubebi, joins us on the line to tell us more about this challenge. Good afternoon, uh, Dominic. Welcome to Africa Midday. Good afternoon, Kumbala, and thank you very much for having me. All right, uh, please tell us more about the hashtag, uh, hashtag 30 Day Inclusion Challenge. What is it all about? Absolutely. So the Inclusion Challenge was really uh, the brainchild of my business partner together with Interweave Consulting and Amanda Hammett in that we've had the honor and the opportunity as a small South African company to be involved in a global conversation dealing in various matters that you know relate to diversity, quality and inclusion. And essentially with a 30-day inclusion challenge, we've put it together as a resource where anybody, literally anywhere around the world, We've had people from India, from the UK, from Canada, South Africa, Swaziland, really engaging in this 30-day inclusion assessment for themselves personally, just to learn a little bit more regarding, you know, people that may not necessarily hold the same views that we do or see life in the way that we do, and yet we all are still needing to coexist within one space. And how has the response been, Dominic, so far um, uh, to this challenge? Mm. It's been absolutely incredible. I think we've had more than 3,000 participants uh, that have taken part in the challenge. Uh, They've been updating on their LinkedIn profiles, on their Facebook profiles regarding the things that they've really learned. Um, in that when you think about it, you know, when we went into the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and many countries went into lockdown, 
Who would have thought that in the middle of a global pandemic, something like Black Lives Matter would now take center stage, and we as a global community are now discussing racism again in the middle of a global pandemic? And so it's really proven that unless we work on um, really strengthening our relationships as a human family, seeing each other as human, and ensuring that we help those in our communities that are in the most need, that until we get that right, the things that are a global challenge will always really keep us on the back foot. Now, you you saying that uh, this initiative will uh, enable individuals uh, to build uh, greater consciousness and awareness around matters that relate to equality, diversity, and inclusion. But what about the long-term effect of uh, this initiative? Do you think it will have a long-term tangible, uh, it will make a a long-term tangible difference in addressing inclusivity? Yeah, uh, it definitely will not make a difference until people move to looking at the systemic challenges that have brought about inequality. We live in a world that has been built on injustice. And to be frank, we live within a global power structure built on the exploitation, on the domination, uh, on, 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 on really the, the downtrodding of those that are considered to be non-white and those that are black in particular. That's the current context that we find ourselves in. What we're doing as an organization through this 30-day challenge is to provide a common language and awareness. Because often people debate with each other, and you see this in social media. They'll be using the same words, but they've got a fundamentally different understanding of what it is that they're talking about. And at the end of that, there's no resolution. Because what I think you think about equality, we are like in two different wavelengths where that's concerned. So as an organization, we've just thought it important to start with the conversation. But definitely the work that we're doing more deeper is when we move into our clients to then say, how do we go beyond the conversation? How do we go beyond just sharing ideas to, to really start to say, what needs to happen within our societies in order to produce a system of justice. All right. It is a a very important initiative, uh, Dominic, as you are saying. Um, Talk to us about how people can, uh, you know, take part in this initiative and how long is it running for? Hmm. So we kicked off the initiative around two weeks ago. I think now we've just started week number three. But the beauty of it, since it's online, uh, anyone can join at any point. And they can join on join.30dayinclusionchallenge.com. 30, the number. Uh, dayinclusionchallenge.com and they can really join at any point in order to learn around race and ethnicity, generation, gender, LGBTIQ issues within different spaces. And it even will help you understand what it is that we're seeing in our country going on at the moment when people are speaking about farm murders, when people are engaging with things like Senegal or even, you know, the clicks uh, adverts that we saw a few weeks ago. All of these things are still rooted within diversity and inclusion issues. And so it's a really enable you as an individual, as a manager, as a leader, to really be far more refined and understand what it is that we're trying to achieve when we speak of equality in our society. All right, absolutely. Um, Unfortunately, Dominic, we have run out of time. I would have loved to continue this conversation, but that's all we had time for. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Kumbano. Very much appreciated. All right. That's Dominic Khaobepi, a partner for diversity and inclusion specialist at Cohesion Collective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. 
What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Agenda-based violence, referred to in short as GBV, remains a serious global scourge which has been made even more visible by the COVID-19 pandemic that forced countries around the world into lockdown, resulting in even more challenges for GBV victims. Restrictions in movement during South Africa's hardcore lockdown, for instance, made it easier for perpetrators to torment their victims with little or no room for support services. In the build-up to the commemoration of the United Nations 75th anniversary, we today reflect on the role of uh, this global body in efforts to end GBV so that the Sustainable Development Goals can be realized. More from N. Gitu Kushongwe, head of UN Women in South Africa. The UN is very concerned about the levels of gender-based violence um, in South Africa and really um, very concerned about the level of killings as well. Um, and this is an area that the entire United Nations um, is partnering with the government in the implementation of the National Strategic Plan so that we make sure there is real resolve to change this trajectory. So the UN is very engaged. And this is not, you know, it, it, South Africa is unique in that we see very high levels of killings. We see very high levels of sexual violence. But violence is, of course, not unique to South Africa. And so the United Nations across the world is watching very closely uh, multiple countries. And, you know, during COVID, one of the data points that we, we were using quite a bit at United Nations um, Women was uh, uh, the figure around intimate partner violence. And intimate partner violence mm. became a big, big, big concern because of women being in, in lockdown. 243 million women um, experience intimate partner violence uh, every single year. That's an annual data point. And so it is not unique to South Africa. In fact, we started receiving data during lockdown about Europe, where we saw in France and Italy rise in, in GBV levels of about to about 30% of intimate partner violence in particular. So we, you know, as the United Nations, this is a massive priority. It's really one of the areas that we put forward collectively during COVID, a UN flash appeal. We've had a, several analyses that we have done of the impact of COVID on the country, and GBV is a central part of that. Mm. that no, and in for a, the longest a, time, you know, there, there's been concern around um, GBV not receiving the attention that it deserves, uh, with, the, of course, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and how that has seen a lot of victims stuck with their perpetrators. Do you think that this is something that has assisted in, in really um, uh, shining the spotlight on the uh, high levels of GBV? 
I mean, COVID-19, of course, created um, a whole new dynamic that we had never anticipated. One of the first things we did um, with the United Nations in support of the government's more uh, you know, uh, social development and with a lot of civil society organizations was that we immediately created an emergency referral pathway for women who would be locked down in their, in their homes. And we brought on board um, civil society organizations and churches and who would be able to support the extra help that was needed during COVID. Um, but what began to happen is that because women generally uh, first of all, reporting is very low in general, and the MRC has got data that shows that reporting is between 10 and 20 percent of women who actually report cases. But what we found was that because many women report cases by physically going to a clinic or physically going to a police station, when they're locked down with partners, uh, they're unable to report. And so we saw a disproportionately low uh, 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 level of, of calls to the different uh, command center and, and, and to the police. But interestingly, in the data that we've done, and we've just completed a survey that was sort of trying to understand what was happening during that time, it does say that there were very high levels of violence during lockdown four and five. So even though we didn't have the data, what we do know is that it is masked by the reality of the lives and where women live and how they report. And so a lot of the work we've been doing um, is supporting the implementation of the National Strategic Plan and you know, focusing on the issue of reporting. What, you know, what are alternative reporting platforms? You know, there's multiple ways that, that reporting is done, like I said. Some people walk to clinics. There's also uh-huh. SMSs that are available. There are, you know, there is the police lines. There are, you know, Discovery has come up with a new line. You know, multiple people have put up. There's over 20 different lines that are out there uh, helplines in one way or the other. For people who are listening and would love uh, to, to read up a little bit more on some of the pertinent points that you've made, uh, where can they go to gain that information? Well, they can go to um, our uh, website, United Nations in South Africa. Um, they can um, go to unwomen.org. We have lots of information in, in, those, in those particular platforms. And of course, they can follow us on Twitter and, and be able to see some of the work that we do because we do share it on our social media platforms as well. That's uh, Anne Gituku Shongwe, head of uh, the UN Women Multi-Country Office based in South Africa, on the line there to Zico Namiso. The United States is likely to have enough safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines available to inoculate the most vulnerable Americans by the end of 2020. This is according to Health and Human Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. This comes as the U.S. reported more than 1,100 new COVID-19 deaths, the highest daily toll recorded in more than a month. More in this Reuters report. We're approaching a critical phase. Top officials at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention stressed on Wednesday that the coronavirus pandemic is far from over, and the CDC's Deputy Director for Infectious Diseases, Jay Butler, said the outbreak has been worsening as cold weather pushes Americans indoors. Unfortunately, we're seeing a distressing trend here in the United States with COVID-19 cases increasing in nearly 75% of the country. CDC Director Robert Redfield said he was optimistic that one or two vaccines, likely from Pfizer or Moderna, will be available by the end of the year. 
but we're not quite there yet. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar was more upbeat about the prospects of a vaccine being available to inoculate the most vulnerable Americans before the end of 2020. There is hope on the way in the form of safe and effective vaccines in a matter of weeks or months. Azar said he expects all seniors, healthcare workers, and first responders will be able to receive a vaccine as soon as January, with the rest of the American public able to get a vaccine by April. At recent campaign rallies, President Donald Trump has said the U.S. is, quote, rounding the corner in the coronavirus pandemic. At Wednesday's news conference, Azar was asked about it. In simple English, sir, are we rounding the corner? And are these rallies a good idea? Listen, our guidance is the same regardless of setting. Wash your hands, watch your distance, wear your face covering when you can't watch your distance and avoid settings where you can't do those things. According to a Reuters analysis, four states reported a record one-day increase in COVID-19 deaths on Wednesday. Iowa, Minnesota, Montana, and Wisconsin, a hotly contested state in the November 3rd presidential election, the analysis also showed that Wisconsin reported a record daily increase in new cases, together with Illinois and Ohio. And that was a Reuters report. Are you ready? Something new, informative, fun and exciting is coming your way. Channel Africa is introducing brand new shows and you, our valued listener, do not want to miss these. Live Well will be launched on the 31st of August at 10 hours and will educate us about health, wellness and health lifestyles. African Insight to be launched on the 2nd of September at 8 hours. It looks at infrastructure projects in Africa in an effort to improve the continent's economy. Yours truly to be launched on the 31st of August Broadcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday between 22 hours and 23 hours. And it will connect listeners to the loved ones through dedications, well wishes, topped up with great African music. Cuisines Africa will be launched on the 5th of September at 10 hours. And we'll leave you salivating as we explore diverse African dishes of culture and rich history. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV 802 for these new exciting editions. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is uh, 10 minutes uh, before 6 Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest with me, Kumbero Munjarere. It is now time for the latest economic news with Nosi Lezuma. Thank you, Kumelo. Good evening. Lebanon's newly nominated Prime Minister Saad Al-Hariri says he will form a government of experts who will have to confront the country's very grave economic crisis. He was forced to resign last year during prolonged anti-government street protests. The BBC's Martin Patience reports from Beirut. 
In Lebanon, it can often feel like nothing has changed. Despite massive anti-government protests, economic collapse, and then the Beirut blast, all in the past year, for the country's politicians, it appears to be business as usual. If he manages to form a government, and that's far from being a given, Saad Hariri will be serving as Lebanon's Prime Minister for his third time. But the challenges he faces are enormous and the international community has repeatedly said it will not provide assistance unless the country's leaders fundamentally reform the system. Executive finance manager at Transnet South Africa's freight rail Yusuf Leha has denied allegations that he authored a memorandum which requested the then Transnet board to approve an unjustified 61 million US dollar increase in Transnet locomotives agreement. He says he was surprised when then Transnet chief financial officer Anoj Singh told him that the board had approved to procure each locomotive at 183,000 US dollars more than his own calculation. Responding to advocate Anton Mayberg's questions at the Commission of Inquiry into state capture in Johannesburg, Leha said he accepted Singh's explanation because he feared being charged with insubordination. What are you saying? That you performed simply a secretarial function? Yes. Then why and, just... and chase up whatever information you wanted me to chase up. Yeah. Yes, but are you saying you authored none of that memorandum? I would have captured his wording in like he wrote it out. So you performed, and it's important, we just need to know. Yeah. You performed simply a secretarial function. Yeah, except for table one where he explained to me how yeah. to put the table well, together. Come to table one. Yeah. So apart from, because of course table one is the critical thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a record of the... Right. That's, that's really what I wanted yeah. to get at. South Africa's power utility ESCOM's group chief executive Andre Dureta says theft and vandalism remain major challenges in the power utilities effort to ensure reliable and uninterrupted electricity supply. ESCOM has embarked on a communication drive to educate the public about illegal connections, the load reduction drive and other issues impacting the national power grid. Dureta briefed the media in Johannesburg on ESCOM's overall performance during which he stressed that illegal activities cost the power utility millions of dollars. On the distribution side of our business, we are concerned that there are continued illegal activities that affect our grid. At present, we are losing about 2.5 billion rand a year due to electricity theft, illegal connections and meter tampering. Now, given the constrained state of the Eskom financial statements, this is not a loss that we can accommodate. And we have therefore decided to implement load reduction during peak hours in order to protect our assets. A Hong Kong regulator has fined the U.S. investment bank Goldman Sachs $350 million for its involvement in one of the world's biggest financial scandals. The BBC's Michael Bristow reports. The regulator said Goldman's Asian unit had displayed serious lapses while underwriting three bond sales for a Malaysian government fund known as 1MDB. He said the executive behind the bank's role in the deal was involved in paying bribes and kickbacks. Goldman Sachs received nearly $600 million for the bond sales, which raised more than $6 billion. The money was supposed to fund economic development in Malaysia, but much of it was stolen. The bank has already agreed to pay $2.5 billion to settle criminal proceedings with the Malaysian government. 
And according to the International Monetary Fund IMF, Asia-Pacific is set to recover from its worst recession in living memory. Growth forecasts for the region have been downgraded again, this time from 1.6% to 2.2% for this year. However, the glimmer of hope is for a bounce back at almost 7% next year. The IMF says China will play a big part in the region's growth next year, with its latest data showing continued recovery from the downturn caused by the virus. The international organization also says there are still many black clouds on the horizon as countries including India, the Philippines and Malaysia continue to battle with COVID-19 infections. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 380.75 Nigerian Naira, 11.29 Botswana Bula, 107.87 Kenyan Shilling and 2020 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar is trading at 5.60 Brazilian Rill, 76.96 Russian Ruble, 73.44 Indian Rupee, 6.65 Chinese Yuan and at 16.36 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to the euro. Now looking at commodities gold is trading at $1,913 and platinum at $884 per ounce while brand crude oil is at $41.52 a barrel for channel africa news i'm nosiche zuma This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour from myself, Kumbaro Mujarere, producer Lebo Musreu, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening.